You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Abrocho. This is On Principle Challenges in Jewish Education. This is our 25th episode, and we have had uh, a number of educators, very esteemed ones, from all walks and aspects of Jewish education. We've had Kiruv, community building, counselors, and of course, principals and menahalim. Um, and here for our 25th episode, I have uh, the schools of having someone that uh, I've looked up to in many ways, uh, someone that I have uh, read, and I'm sure many of our listeners have, have read uh, these wonderfully written articles uh, that were able to be cogent and relatable about very complicated subjects. Uh, I've used this material in, in a lot of my teaching, uh, and I'm joined by someone who's uh, graciously given of his time, uh, Rabbi Michael J. Broyd, the professor of law at Emory University, uh, founding rabbi of uh, the Young Israel in Atlanta, and uh, a former Menachel of the Besan of America, which is, in a way, uh, the last thing I'm saying about it, which is, in a way, part of what binds us together. Uh, someone who has uh, been uh, a member of the Besan of America and uh, been in, actually met Rabbi Broid there. Uh, that's sort of what has connected us. Uh, and I'm happy that we're finally able to speak face to face. Though most of of what we do on this program is to talk about issues of things that are coming up in education and how it's done. And Rabbi Broid, I know, uh, has been a teacher uh, and is a, a very well respected teacher in uh, in his role at Emory. And I'm sure that there are a lot of challenges about how to teach in ways uh, to make uh, very complex ideas understandable. uh, And that's part of what his life uh, has been. I want to use today to actually ask Rabbi Broid to teach us, to teach me, (laughs) speaking to him now, and to teach us in general about uh, elements and aspects and principles that we can gain and garner from the life of really the personage that bonds Rabbi Broid and I together. And that is uh, Rabbi Gedalia Dov Schwartz, Zecher Tzadok Levrocha, who uh, passed away um, two weeks ago, approximately, was on uh, December 9th. So it's it's going to be two weeks tomorrow. And uh, I'm still processing it. And we have on this platform uh, dedicated a number of programs um, towards that. And Rabbi Broid, I thought that you might be able to to help us uh, understand the greatness of this man. And I should mention before I uh, hand the mic over to you, because uh, I know you're not going to sing your own hosannas, that you were able um, on one page of the Jewish press um, uh, that was print that was last week's Jewish press, able to offer a tribute to Rabbi Schwartz in a way that. I know because I asked people who read it and uh, who were very, very appreciative of what you were able to do because not just ticking off biographical details, you were able to zero in on one of the most important psukim that Rabbi Schwartz gave to the world, um, the use of um, stem cell uh, material from embryos and for use for scientific uh, and, and further medical experimentation to cure diseases, and you were able to analyze that so wonderfully and bring forth 
the greatness, and I, again, it needs to be said, the greatness of Rabbi Schwartz in terms of his, his vision and in terms of his Pesach Halacha. So if you could perhaps go do, a, do something similar for us and teach us in this time that we have together about this man, this leader, this Pesach. Uh, it, this is a very important conversation, and to some extent, because Rabbi Schwartz lived such a long life and he spent his last few years um, much more reserved than he previously had been, it's easy to miss how much he contributed. Like Rabbi Lamb, who also pulled back at the end and was privileged to live to a ripe old age, um, Rabbi Schwartz. Rabbi Schwartz's and contributions to our community are must, much less appreciated than you might think. When they write a history of the modern Orthodox community in America broadly, the community that is encompassed by the OU, a broad community from the non-Hasidic community on the right to the liberal modern Orthodox community on the left, Rabbi Schwartz was involved in, or himself personally made, many profound, important decisions that impacted our community. Because he was more quiet these last few years after his stroke, it's easy to miss how significant his contributions were in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. Well into 2015, Rabbi Schwartz was the leading halachic authority in our community on so many matters. He was truly the closest thing we had to a universally respected posseg who was accepted in communities far broader than the Yeshiva University community that he came from. He was not a posseg for the Yeshiva University community. He was a posseg for the breadth and depth of the modern Orthodox community whose word was accepted um, in places much farther to the right and much farther to the left than Yeshiva University goes. Um, That's itself important to recognize. There were aspects in him of the communal acceptance like Moshe Feinstein had. Um, After I published what I wrote in the Jewish press, I was taken aback by the number of Hasidim and Lubavitchers who wrote to me saying, I used Rabbi Schwartz as my posseg. And the number of people connected to the more liberal community who wrote to me the same thing. Rabbi Schwartz, his piske halacha extended far broader than people imagined. Uh, I was talking to a, a Chabad Shaliach who remarked to me that Rabbi Schwartz served as the Dayan Yechidi for no less than 15 internal Chabad disputes where they all agreed to go to Rabbi Schwartz to resolve them because they trusted him and his judgment. Um, I want to talk today about four aspects of Rabbi Schwartz's greatness in Halacha. Like every person, one could easily talk about their personality, um, their favorite nigunim, their home life. I don't want to do any of that. It's not that that's not important, but that isn't what I want to do here. I want to focus on four matters 
that I saw Rabbi Schwartz deal with on on a very technical nitty-gritty level and what we can learn about them. The first is Rabbi Schwartz's incessant and regular dealings on matters of Kedushe Tod. Kedushe Tod, error in the creation of the marriage, is these rare and occasional cases in which a woman or a man are allowed to leave their marriage without a get being given. Rav Moshe Feinstein, in his lifetime, issued a few such psakim, and with Rav Moshe's passing, people were uncomfortable picking up the mantle of doing Kedushe Tavs because it requires broad and wide shoulders to permit a woman to remarry without the benefit of a get. And to many people's surprise, but with hindsight not to mine, Rabbi Schwartz picked up that mantle and became for 25 years or longer the leading go-to person to go to in those rare situations in which a husband was withholding a get and there were grounds in which to nullify the marriage because the husband had a defect that goes to the core of the marriage that was hidden from the woman and but for this defect she would not have married him. Those were the grounds Rav Moshe articulated and Rabbi Schwartz upon Rabbi Feinstein's passing picked up the mantle of doing Kedushe Tos and notwithstanding quite a bit of communal pressure and quite a bit of complexity he and Yibadlul Chaim Aruchim Tovim, Rabbi Nata Greenblatt, together and separately and sometimes jointly, did a variety of Kiddushe Tod matters in our community that needed to be done and that most people were afraid of doing. And I know that Rabbi Schwartz was subject to pressure to stop, um, both by some people who just like to impose pressure on people and by others who had some intellectual hesitation. And I saw from Rabbi Schwartz one very important idea. Rabbi Schwartz said, central to the rabbinic mandate of what a, a posek does is a posek helps women who have trouble getting divorced. And that the halachic system directs us that a posek stops the other important things that they're doing and helps women who are having trouble getting divorced. I saw this loud and clear and directly on many different Kedushe Tov matters that I worked with Rabbi Schwartz on. And he felt very strongly that um, Amora Hurrah um, didn't just answer Pistrami Shilas, and didn't only answer Shilas that made everybody happy. He answered Shilas that were intellectually complicated and difficult um, for people who were in distress. And um, when you do Kiddushay Tov's Shilas, you see that typically the woman is herself not perfect. But that's okay. Rabbi Schwartz reminded me that even Jews who are not malachim, even Jews who are not angelic are entitled to access to a mora hora to address 
their circumstances. This was an important part of who Rabbi Schwartz was, that he had a great deal of sympathy for um, women who were trapped in marriages that were appropriate to end. And the second thing I saw from this related to Agunot, which was Agunot of the other type, which is after the World Trade Center, we went back to the Aguna situation that we didn't think we were going to encounter, which is deceased husbands whose death couldn't be proven. And I saw here something else from Rabbi Schwartz, which is Rabbi Schwartz dove right into very nitty-gritty things. Rabbi Schwartz at 9-11 was 75 and not a spring chicken. And yet he dove right into elaborate and long conversations with me about the nature of scientific evidence. I had many conversations with him about DNA evidence. Uh, he, somebody had whispered to him that a long time ago uh, I was a biochemistry major and that I could talk to him. And I spent a lot of time talking to him. And his nimble mind was very comfortable saying, I need to invest in learning something new. I will say this about Rabbi Schwartz. He had the nimblest mind I saw happily willing to learn new things. And I don't mean new things like a new reshow. I don't mean new things like another Sefer on Hilfus Shabbos. I mean new things like um, can I send you an article from Scientific American that summarizes the state of the field now? And Rabbi Schwartz was very happy to read out of his expertise in Torah. Um, read out of his expertise in Torah. He, he, you know, he didn't want to learn science for the sake of science because he was busy with other things. But when science for the sake of Torah came up, Rabbi Schwartz was happy to stand there and learn the science. And he was nimble at it and impressive and happy to do so. So in the 9-11 Agunot situations, he deeply invested in learning new things. Rabbi Schwartz always reminded people, maybe just always reminded me of the fact that no matter what stage of life you're in, there's new things to learn. And sometimes you have to not just dig deeper in your field, You have to be prepared to dig in another field that you might be a little bit intellectually uncomfortable in, but that's okay. Um, You need to learn new things. Um, That was very important, that Rabbi Schwartz was comfortable learning new things in Torah, was very interesting, but that Rabbi Schwartz was comfortable learning new things in science was more fascinating to me, and a few different times I had elaborate conversations with Rabbi Schwartz about new things in American law, and he was happy to invest in new things in American law. Um, Once in in 2005, he asked me if I could write him a few pages to discuss uh, development in law and religion, and I wrote him a few pages, and he went over with great detail, Uh, a studious man um, catching up on developments in American constitutional law. And he was happy to do that. He, he was an intellectual mind, um, happy to learn new things, not just happy to learn a new parish on the Yerushalmi, and not just happy to learn a new Rishon 
on a Masechta, not just happy to learn a new Sefer and Hilchus Shabbos, but happy to learn something new about American law, happy to learn something new about um, DNA testing at levels of certainty in a bone analysis of DNA testing. Very fascinating. He, he, he was capable of being um, innovative and creative and learning new things. The second thing I want to focus on with Rabbi Schwartz was even rarer. Um, Rabbi Schwartz used to joke that he was the foremost halachic authority in the United States who was a second-generation American. That was what he used to joke. He was a second-generation American. His mother and father were both born in the United States. His father was a baker. His mother was quite an intellectual figure in Rabbi Schwartz's life who continuously reminded him to learn new things and to grow intellectually. And um, Rabbi Schwartz was um, deeply concerned with the tone of American society. The article I wrote in Jewish Press about Rabbi Schwartz's view on stem cells was written by Rabbi Schwartz, unlike any other tshuva I've been involved with Rabbi Schwartz in, in English for the American public. And the primary audience was not halachic authorities. Rabbi Schwartz believed that it was incumbent upon people like him um, to represent the Jewish tradition to the general American public in authentic and proper ways. And he thought it was an important mission of modern orthodoxy to not be so insular, but to speak about matters of Jewish law in a way that spoke to people who were genuinely interested in what Jewish law had to contribute, but weren't so familiar with the intricacies of Jewish law. So Rabbi Schwartz stood up in 2000 and 2001 as the United States was discussing stem cell research. And, and with both hands, he endorsed it and said, stem cell research is an important aspect of medical technology and we should invest in stem cell research to cure people. And then he imposed some caveats and some limitations, as was his style. But when you ask Rabbi Schwartz, who was he talking to? The answer is he wasn't talking to the members of the Chicago Rabbinical Council who, who don't do stem cell research. He was talking to the government of the United States and the state of, uh, of Illinois and, the, and medical researchers throughout the United States to encourage them to do something that the Catholic Church was going around saying to people was immoral. He wanted it clear to people <laughs> that the Jewish tradition did not think this was immoral and they should not hesitate to push the frontiers of medical science, confident in the fact that the Jewish tradition was very comfortable with medical research. He wasn't talking to yeshiva students because you don't get to do stem cell research even in a laboratory in yeshiva college. He wanted to talk to the general American public about why this was morally important. Rabbi Schwartz believed in the good American society. And he thought on the whole, America was a wonderful, good place. 
and that we, halachic people, needed to invest in being part of that good society so that we could make sure it stayed on the right path. And if it ever moved off the right path for a moment, we helped push it back onto the right path. This is an important idea that Rabbi Schwartz believed was was valuable. He did it regularly in Illinois as the Av Besden of the Chicago Rabbinical Council. And he did it regularly in conversation with people who were not deeply committed to Torah and mitzvot, but were deeply interested in morality and doing the just and good. I asked him once about whether I should be interviewed by a a secular newspaper that's writing a story on religious views on stem cell research. And Rabbi Schwartz said, of course, you need to go out there to persuade good people that stem cell research is ethical. Not just mutter, but ethical. He thought that that was an important idea. It's so interesting. You contrast that broad worldly person with a third attribute of Rabbi Schwartz. Rabbi Schwartz believed really passionately and intensely about being technically correct as a matter of halacha. Rabbi Schwartz was a man who built Eruvin, who supervised Kashrut, not just in some abstract intellectual way, but Rabbi Schwartz would be galloping around Kashrut's factories, examining knives and doing teaching people to do Nikor. I learned quite a bit of Nikor from Rabbi Schwartz. Um, this was a man who was enmeshed in the technical details of halacha, from building Eruvin to supervising the slaughter of kosher meat, to writing Gittin, to Gerus, um, to a broad variety of activities in the very technical area of halacha. He was an Isha halacha in the exact way um, that, for example, um, Rabbi Soloveitchik, a grand theoretician, was not. Um, Rabbi Schwartz was comfortable not just learning Eruvin and thinking about Eruvin, but he was comfortable getting on a cherry picker and examining a lechi 30 feet off the ground. And he was comfortable not only giving sheer in Yerodea, but he was comfortable standing among pieces of meat, talking to a shochet, wearing a hard hat. And he was happy not just to learn Meseches Gittin, but he was happy to be Masada getting in real-world situations. Twice I went to prisons with Rabbi Schwartz to be Masada getting for a man who needed to give a get and who was in prison. Um, on a very practical level, Rabbi Schwartz was involved in lots of the technical structure of halacha. He wasn't just in a yeshiva, and he wasn't just a person who taught Yaradea without any reference to the reality around us, he built large numbers of Kashrus, Gittin, Eruvin, Gerus structures in the world that we actually live in. He was the go-to man on lots of Eruvin, Kashrus, Gittin, Gerus, and many other technical areas of halacha. He believed after you learned a technical area of halacha, you went out and you saw it being done in the field, and then you tried to do it yourself, and you became a practical expert, and not just a theoretical expert. 
And lots of the structures in our community that in theory were built by this person were in fact actually built by Rabbi Schwartz. And he encouraged this and liked this. He didn't just think you should <coughs> learn Masechet Eruvin. He thought that you should spend your time walking the Eruv lines and making suggestions and supervising communal Eruvin in other places. This was a very, very important part of Rabbi Schwartz. He was a practical builder of halacha community who not only lived in a theory universe, but he comfortably took his theory universe and turned it into a practical universe. Um, these three aspects of Rabbi Schwartz are, are really fundamental. He believed very mightily in being involved in Aguna matters, both in Kedusha Tot and in women whose husbands have actually disappeared. He believed in being incredibly involved in um, the building of a good society in the United States and sharing the Jewish vision of a good society with secular people of goodwill who want to know what Judaism has to say. And thirdly, he believed in being involved in the nitty-gritty of halacha, Gittin, Dine Torah, um, uh, Geirus, Kashrus, the whole works. Um, he didn't shy away from taking the principles that worked in theory and applying them in the real world. And beneath that is this incredible layer of integrity, an incredible layer of integrity. Rabbi uh, Lenny Matanki made reference to this in Rabbi Schwartz's, in the Hespit he gave at Rabbi Schwartz's funeral, which you can see online. Um, Rabbi Schwartz was a person of enormous personal integrity. And what undergirded him was a fearlessness to examine the reality around him, the ability to make practical decisions, and then not to hesitate to implement these practical decisions in the real world, no matter who disagreed with him one way or another. He wasn't easily pushed around. Indeed, I think he was never pushed around. Um, and um, Rabbi Schwartz had an incredible sense of what was the right thing to do. He, he reached the conclusion for what was right to do after a great deal of thought. But then when somebody called him up and said, you know, I'm going to hurt you if you implement your decision, Rabbi Schwartz paid no attention to things like that. He wasn't easily pressured. Um, and that undergirded veneer of integrity um, made Rabbi Schwartz ever so more impressive when he dealt with Aguna matters, um, when he dealt with things of general interest to American society, or when he dealt with the practical matters from Erev into Kashrus, from Gittin to Gerus. You knew that you weren't being glad-handled by Rabbi Schwartz. You knew you were given the authentic opinion of Rabbi Schwartz. And even when he said something to you that you didn't want to hear, Rabbi Schwartz occasionally said things to me that I didn't want to hear. Um, I never doubted for a moment that this was the true Rabbi Schwartz that was speaking, and he was not parroting somebody else's words because somebody told him that was politically expedient. Rabbi Schwartz was not that kind 
of politician Posick. There was something deeply authentic about him that allowed you to admire him and respect him, even if he didn't do what you wanted him to do. And even if you thought that you would handle the matter differently, you knew that what you were watching here was an embodiment of Torah and mitzvot in an authentic, deep way um, that was very admirable. Rabbi Broid, I've uh, been listening, um, and just like whenever I've heard you speak, um, uh, mesmerized and uh, definitely taken by what you're trying to say and what you have said so so eloquently. And I think as you're talking, what builds within me is a great sadness, the sadness that I have, of course, of losing my mentor and, and my Rebbe, but the sadness of how that, all those wonderful things, yeah, <laughs> the three things that, that you have mentioned, where are we going to pick up the pieces and move forward? You know, one of the things that Rabbi Schwartz wrote is an editor in, uh, in Hadarom, when he would, when the, uh, when the journal became only a yearly, uh, uh, and then even less than a yearly, he would sum, he would summarize the difficult things that had occurred over those years. And when Rav Moshe, as you mentioned, passed away, when the, uh, the attack on the Twin Towers that led to this incredible um, uh, nervous and, and tense-filled situation in the country, Rabbi Schwartz would always, in those introductory comments, speak about being firm and strong, pushing forward, not, uh, as, you, as you said before, not being scared of any challenges, but actually to gird ourselves for even greater accomplishments. Now, as Rabbi Schwartz is gone, and as you said, he unfortunately was taken out by that stroke four years ago, but now with his death, I, I think we really have to confront this. Um, and I'm going to just say one other thing. You know, as a person who does podcasts, I have to sort of have my ear to the ground about what's happening in the Jewish world more than I did before. And I didn't buy all the Jewish magazines or get realize what was going on, but it hurt me on a very deep level that Rabbi Schwartz gets one page in the Jewish press. Did he get pages all over? You know, and again, we, we've lost so many great ones with Reb David, Feinstein, Zatzal, Jonathan Sachs, uh, Zatzal, and others. But it seems like Rabbi Schwartz was underappreciated, and yet you have underscored how important he was. And unlike other great figures' deaths that everyone realizes, we've got to now put pick up the the, the gauntlet and fulfill, fill that vacuum. I'm worried that these important principles that Rabbi Schwartz represented that are sort of going to wither away. So what can we do, Rabbi Bruyd? And I don't expect you to be the oracle that can give us all the answers because it's always it's much easier to look at the past and describe what was than to give us hope for the future. But where do you see us using Rabbi Schwartz as the inspiration as a Lincoln-like figure? As a uh, like in the United States to sort of push forward and 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 keep on implementing and those ideals that he represented. Rabbi Schwartz wrote me almost a decade ago that one of his sayings in life is 
that people rise to the challenges presented to them. And that was definitely Rabbi Schwartz's view, which is um, the central measure of a human being, Rabbi Schwartz felt, was whether they rise to the challenges presented to them. And Rabbi Schwartz always rose as the need arose, and he was happy to pull back when the need was diminished. Rabbi Schwartz is not as roundly honored as he ought to be, because Rabbi Schwartz didn't want to be roundly honored in this way. He, he thought that these things didn't serve him well, and he wasn't uh, the person who wanted to be the honoree at every dinner. It just wasn't who he was, and it wasn't how he wanted to be. In terms of who will pick up the slack, that's a much harder question. There's a terrible void in the United States right now in the area of Kiddushetot, of annulment in marriage. Various people are doing them, but none of them are doing them in a well-established, excellent way like Rabbi Schwartz um, was. And that's not a void that's easily filled, but it's a void that needs to be filled. A small number of marriages uh, a small number of marriages genuinely need to end through annulment, and it serves as an important aspect of addressing the totality of the Aguna problem. I hope and pray that somebody comes along um, who addresses those issues, and I'm not exactly sure who that will be or how that will occur. Um, and to the extent I have an income. I'm just interrupting you here, and I'm sorry, but no problem. It, would, it would probably be someone who needed to have the ironclad integrity of a Rabbi Schwartz to be able to wield that mallet. Uh, and or I don't know if a mallet is the right term, but to be able to uh, to do that, right? And unfortunately, um, because of you know the type of com- the society we live in, this type of culture where people are attacked and vilified and um, it's difficult for someone to to stand in the breach even if they wanted to because yes they have to be a person who doesn't care about the bricks that are thrown at them rabbi schwartz never cared about the bricks that are thrown at them maybe somebody will arise who cares a little bit less about the bricks that are thrown at them i i I sense who that might be, but I don't think that uh, a podcast is the place to talk about um, who exactly are those candidates. But it has to be a person, not only of broad shoulders, but an iron stomach as well, because it becomes a position of contested, uh, of contest where people say the most vile things. I I, I would ask you about the second factor that you mentioned, which is being not only the eth- the voice of ethical Judaism towards uh, the secular culture around us, but also being the incredibly um, important posek as well. Look, you know, you, you might have an ethicist or you might even have someone, uh, even if I, you know, I'm going to name drop here, like Mayor Salvechik, who is able to uh, eloquently express authentic Jewish ideas to a, a larger culture. I think what gives Rabbi Schwartz uh, the muscular 
gave him that muscular uh, ability was the fact that it wasn't just someone writing after he read some material. He was a posik. Where's the posik who's going to uh, articulate for us? And not only a message towards the Gentile culture, but also as a model to us about appreciating that culture, uh, a model to us for us to say, hmm, they're not bad. There, there, are such, there are such commonality that binds us that we should be part of the conversation and be part of that patchwork of community as opposed to what's happening. And you saw it, you see it very much in COVID, uh, the fracturing of, uh, of that unity. And let, me, of- let me put this in a slightly different way, but it's a very important observation. What makes the Mora Nebuchim such an impressive work is that it's written by the person who wrote the Mishnah Torah. And what makes Rabbi Schwartz's pronouncements about stem cell research so much more important is it's written by a guy who builds Eruvin and supervises kosher meat and is Masader Gitten and is an Isha Halacha through and through. It's a very important observation. I don't see currently on the horizon an Isha Halacha who's prepared to do secular ethics um, from a Jewish perspective. Um, Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik is a wonderful visionary of that, um, of those secular ethics shared in a fantastic way, but not a person who's that kind of Isha Halacha. Exactly. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. It, it, it's a, uh, people who comfortably live in both worlds aren't present in every generation. It's a rare thing. Even Rabbi Sachs, um, uh, wasn't the same kind of Isha Halacha. Yeah, well, of course not. He, of he, course not. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I understand. And most of the Isha Halacha, who were Rabbi Schwartz's peers, um, uh, were not interested in talking about um, secular society and secular ethics. I fully and completely understand. I don't see um, that aspect of Rabbi Schwartz being replaced. I do see, by the way, Rabbi Schwartz having produced a generation of technical halachasis who are taking over specific pieces of what Rabbi Schwartz was doing in halachic matters. The successor in the Chicago Rabbinical Council, the brilliant, thoughtful, well, well-composed and learned Rabbi Yona Reese um, is an example of that. This is a person who has many aspects of Rabbi Schwartz in him. He was probably Rabbi Schwartz's closest Talmud of the last decade, or maybe even the last two decades, um, and an embodiment of Rabbi Schwartz's um, ideals and ideas in, uh, from the age of 80 onward. Um, well, Rabbi Schwartz trained a, 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 a collection of people to do technical halacha, and I have no doubt that the technical halacha will not be dropped, um, and it has not been dropped since Rabbi Schwartz shrunk back after his stroke. So I, I see the technical halacha. No, that well in, in, in that I I, I I thoroughly agree with you. In fact, I think that we've om- we've almost got over technical. You know, we have we have experts in kashras that if you read kashras journals now, they sound like scientific. Uh, examinations of, you know, whether it's microscopic organisms or how, and, and, and almost to the point that they become so over-specialized 
that they're missing the forest because of the trees that they're on, which Rabbi well, Schwartz never did. That's correct. Let me say something even broader than that. Rabbi Schwartz was insistent that you couldn't be a narrow expert in one field of halacha, and that halacha credibility came from broad expertise in many different areas of halacha, and that... Um, uh, I agree with you, and in fact, when I spoke with him, Rabbi, uh, and you know, again, I, I, I count myself as one of the very... I wouldn't say lucky, because that's not a term Rabbi Schwartz would have liked, but I count myself as one of the people who was Zohar to, to be uh, in his influence. And he regularly talked to me about various of these experts, and he would actually uh, indicate that they were missing things by where they were, that they had an, a particular axe to grind or a particular um, molecule to extract from the mitochondria, whatever it was that he felt caused them to perhaps lose that type of focus that he always had. And that's something that I, that, that I bemoan. But I, I think that that area you know, is covered. What I, again, worry about a lot is the areas two and four. The area of the area of uh, what we what we are finding is is that there aren't leaders to extol properly from a halachic giant's perspective the ethics of of, of this country and, and and bonding with them and understanding where we are the same and where we are different. And the fourth thing I would say that you have uh, hammered home to me is that integrity that we are finding throughout. Now, again, you mentioned, of course, Ravnata Greenblatt, who, of course, I'm a Memphis boy who grew up in Ravnata's house. Uh, Ravnata and my father were partners in in business. My father went out of his way to give Ravnata a a business hold in order for him not to be dependent on Balabatim. And uh, we have a wonderful, very deep relationship. But... As you said, Rav Zogazunzain uh, is also the same age as Rabbi Schwartz. Uh, I should That's tell you, correct. I should tell you that the last time I was with Rabbi Schwartz, um, I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast that you were uh, gracious enough to listen to, but um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but uh, when I went to see him in his unfortunate position in the stroke, he, I didn't, of course, get any sense of lack of nobility. He was actually... Uh, propped up, and he was looking at, this was the day mm-hmm. after Tisha B'Av, he was preparing the Tefilas Yoimim Naroyim. Mm-hmm. He was looking at the yeah. Machzer, and he was going through um, he was going through uh, the Tefilas and right. get, getting ready. Most of us most of us look at the Sephardim and say, look how they're getting ready, Rishchidosh Elul. He was getting yeah. ready it before Tuba of for the right. Yom Adin. The second mm-hmm. thing was, I shared with him a video that I had of Rav Nota. And because uh, I had been with Rav Nota earlier that year, and the, the simcha that he saw, min the, the simcha of seeing someone who, like himself, was fearless, someone himself who was the ultimate bucky, but at the same time, shaylet b'cholat e'rekula. Rav Nota and Rabbi Schwartz, they are paradigms of, of, of integrity. Where's the <laughs> next... Where's the next person of integrity of that of, of that caliber? Where are uh-huh. they? 
And, and the, the comparison between Rav Nata and Rav Gedalia Dov Schwartz is, is obvious because they were both out of town and not vested in a particular yeshiva or a particular movement. I did Shemush and Gittin with Rav Nata for a, uh, a number of years, and Rabbi Schwartz was always very uh, uh, appreciative of uh, the training Rav Nata provided. Sure. Um, he, he, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that question, and I'll go a little bit further. It might be that that a chief like this isn't going to arise until the Indians are ready, um, and, and that that's part of the problem. We're going through a moment in Torah and Mitzvot where uh, the Indians are very, very, very technically uh, connected and frequently not looking for a bigger picture. Um, and Rabbi Schwartz and Rabbi Greenblatt both had a bigger picture. And um, yeah, you have to be prepared for that bigger picture um, well, in order to, to be receptive to who they are. Well, uh, you know, let, let, me, let me sum up here uh, with a, a, perhaps uh, an aspect of hope. And I have to tell you that, and I'm going to again draw on something that I know in my bones from both of these men. Ravnota, of course, for years, although the people in the know knew, like the, the, the students, uh, Rav Moshe, of course, and uh, his Talmidim, for years, Ravnota was overshadowed by um, his nephew, Rav Afroyim. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, everybody knew about Rafroyim Greenblatt because he was right. a prolific writer who uh, mm-hmm. published volume after volume of the River Voice. And people right. would say, who's Ravnota again? Who is he? And right. yet, with, and I want to tell you, after Rav Moshe's Ptira and in the decade mm-hmm. following, then Rav Nota really came into his own. Uh, of course, he was always learning. He was always a bookie, and you can see his Shtiklach that he wrote in the MTJ Journal and the type of Yudias and Hekif. But he, he, he has one modest volume of, mm-hmm. of, of, of Kareya Chasode. My right. point, which is brilliant and a wonderful Sefer and Chumash, and I'm sure you've used it, my point is, is that maybe it's not going to come from the young person. It's maybe going to be an elder, a person who's in his 60s, in his 70s. Rabbi Schwartz moved to Chicago to really begin such an important part of his life when he was deep into his 60s, right? He, was, he moved in 1987, and he was That's already, correct. right? And he was already, and yet that was, that was the great part of his life. So maybe... Mm-hmm. We, we should be looking for someone to arise, somebody who will, in the latter part of his life, just like both these men, both as just Rav, Rav Nota and Rabbi Schwartz, and someone who comes to the table with the zikna, with the chachma, uh, and, and therefore a life of integrity, a life of, 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 of being shakua, and maybe that's, the, the figure that that, that that we're looking for. Uh, sometimes I, I think one of the things that, that, that has plagued our door is, in a way, not appreciating enough that, that, that life and Zikna experience and, you know, the young hotshots. And I think maybe maybe that's the, the type of person that we I hope will come. Again, I'm just throwing that so. out to you. I hope so. It would be very nice. I... Uh... I certainly, certainly hope so. Well, I, I know that this, uh, I, I hope that what this 
discussion that we've had and this uh, lecture discussion that we've had about the greatness of Rabbi Schwartz will lead others to to be inspired and I, uh, and and, and hope hopefully so. we'll be able to draw that out. Tizichrei Baruch, and as we say, Moch Hashem Dimam Thank you, Rabbi uh, Broid, for spending this time with us on on principle. And again, we hope to be able to have you back. Uh, on many I, I, I look forward to that and Rabbi Schwartz's conduct and memory should be a blessing to us all. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.